that's really good stuff. Well, listen, I have one item of, <laughs> I was going to say housekeeping, and now that seems a little funny because it actually is literally a housekeeping item. Uh, generally speaking, I have uh, in the other duties as assigned part of Nate's job description made him clean every week at church. So um, as all of you who are parents know, he is now a dad, and that's going to really eat up his time. So he's a full-time student and a full-time uh, servant of the Lord here at church, and now also a dad. And I would love to offload the cleaning from him. I have to for the next couple of weeks because he's off to be home with his wife and new little baby that was born, and she's beautiful and tiny, and they'll be home today. So at any rate, um, I need one of several options, someone to volunteer to oversee custodial stuff. Now, we're talking couple hours a week, okay? I'm not, I don't need to hear like every day, or, you know, it's not a big job, but it is an important job. So if you're interested or willing, preferably both, uh, contact me and I need you to start like this week, okay? Um, so I need someone at least to organize it. I need people to volunteer. Maybe small groups would say, hey, we'll take a week, okay? But I need somebody to organize that and head it up. It takes a couple hours. If you had several of you, you could probably be in and out of here in an hour. So it's really not a lengthy job. But of course, it's important unless you just want overflowing trash cans when you arrive on Sunday and dirty floors and right? We've got to vacuum the carpets. We want to keep the kids' rooms clean, all that kind of stuff. Restrooms, you know, they're always nice to be clean. So please do that for me, okay? Please don't make me beg. Thank you very much. And please don't make me do it. I will be part of the group in this rotation, but I don't want to have to do it all, okay? Because that's other duties is assigned for me. Okay. Great. Listen, we are underway. Last week, we kind of began with a, a general uh, talk about our core values and kind of where we come from, how we develop disciples at Coastal. And so today we're going to begin, and in the next six weeks, we're going to talk about our four core values, which are watchfulness, authenticity, love, and accountability. And we're going to kind of parse them out uh, a little bit as it relates to uh, how they work themselves out in our lives. So uh, here is how... Uh, Coastal defines uh, watchfulness as, our, as one of our core values. It is guarding the gospel of Jesus Christ in ourselves from the culture with the knowledge of the truth of God's word. Okay? I'll read it again in case some of you really diligent people are trying to write that down quick. I should have put it on the notes. Guarding the gospel of Jesus Christ in ourselves from the culture with the knowledge of the truth of God's word. As Jeba said in her testimony, the gospel applies first to the occasion when we trust in Christ and we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That's the first time that the gospel becomes important to us and to changing our lives. But that's not the last time. It is the first of a lifetime of transformation that the gospel effects in our lives. So when we talk about the gospel at Coastal, we're not talking just about your salvation experience. We're talking about what happens as the gospel of Christ continually transforms you and how that 
speaks into so many different areas of your life. So that's why we have uh, determined that this is one of our core values. So when we decide what are we going to do, when we make decisions about the future of Coastal, when we talk about missionary activities, when we talk about whether we're going to open a campus in a particular area, one of the questions we're asking is, how does this help us promote the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? It is central to what we do. Of course, because it's central to the scriptures, but because we don't want to lose track and lose sight of the fact that the gospel is the center of all that we do and teach. So, guarding the gospel. Here's why I think it's important to get a handle on what the gospel actually is as we start that. So, uh, I want to I talk about things that are watered down. Do you, do you like stuff that's watered down? Um, my wife is frugal, and I'm really thankful for that. She will add a little water to the end of the hand soap dispenser to get the last little bits. Any of you other folks do that? I can always tell when that's been done, because it's a... Right? Until I get... I can usually get my hands washed if I get enough, or a little bit to the shampoo. I dump it out, and it runs all over, right? Because it's being conservative. It makes it go longer. That's great. I'm glad. I can go a few more days before we have to buy more. That's really good. So some things, it's really good. I like coffee. I like to have a cup or two or three uh, in the morning, and I hate watered-down coffee. Now, I know we all have distinctions on which coffee we like, whether we even like coffee. It's in your small group questions for this week. Do you prefer coffee or tea? I want an accounting from my small group leaders. <laughs> I'm not a connoisseur or anything. We have people in our church that are like serious coffee people. But I like a good, strong cup of coffee, and I hate it watered down. We seem also to have an innate sense that there are some things you just shouldn't water down, right? I mean, you, you, don't, you don't water down your like gasoline when you fill up the car, right? Because you, you don't want it to go further. It won't go further if you do that, just for the record. Um, we, some things can't be watered down. You can't water down, you know, you got liquid medicine. You can't water it down so it'll last a little longer, right? You, you take it for your 10 days and you move on. There, some things can't be watered down. The gospel is one of the things that cannot be watered down with losing its effectiveness. It becomes completely ineffective if you water it down. So here are some ways, before we get into what is the gospel, here are some ways that I think in our day, in our culture, people are watering down the gospel. Now this first one, get ready, don't write your connect card yet, let me explain myself, okay? The first one is this, God loves everyone. And he doesn't like it when you do wrong. Now, both of those statements are true. But if that's all we say about God, and it's all we say about God's desires for you, we have watered down the impact of the gospel. God does more than love everyone. He loves everyone, and he's holy, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. God wants you to do right, but that's not the end game of the gospel. He doesn't just want you to do better. He doesn't want you to improve. The gospel is not about reformation, making you a better version of what you already are. That's not the message of the gospel. That's 
the message of a 12-step program. We want you to be a better version of what you are. The message of the gospel is not reformation, it's transformation. It's making you something completely new. Secondly, the idea that God wants you happy or healthy or wealthy or insert whatever you want there. God is not opposed to people being happy. In fact, one of the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit is joy, which is this inner sense that God is in control of what's going on. But God's primary goal is not your happiness. I'm sorry if that disappoints you. Uh, God's primary goal for you is your holiness, not your happiness. And sometimes God brings into our lives events and circumstances that will cause unhappiness for a period of time, but in the end will result in our holiness. And God is much more concerned about that as it relates to us. Some of the uh, ways that we water it down, that our culture waters the gospel down, uh, in terms of the, your, your salvation is, first of all, the idea that as long as you're sincere, it doesn't really matter what you believe. I don't know why anybody accepts that, because it's not true in any other discipline. If you went to your medical doctor and they said, you're going to need some medication to take care of this, whatever it is, this what is it, virus or bacteria? One of them you can treat. The other one, you know, it's a week and a half without medication or 10 days with is what I hear. But um, they don't look at you and say, you're going to need medication. And you say, oh, what do I need? Oh, whatever. Just, just pick one. It'll be fine. As long as you sincerely want to get better, you'll be fine. Nobody would do that. that doesn't, that's just silly. But people do that with the gospel all the time. Well, I sincerely believe Okay, but you can be sincere and wrong, right? How about I'm a good person, but I'm, I'm a good person. The problem with that way of thinking is how good is, is good enough? Is 95% is okay? I mean, that's really good. If you're in school and you get 95s all the way through, people are going to say, man, he was an amazing student. She was really good at that stuff. But what if you're 80%? What if you're good, you're better than average, but you're not perfect? Does God grade on a curve? Maybe if we add sincerity to that, I'm pretty good and I'm sincere, maybe that helps, right? But that's not what the scriptures teach. I go to church. I go to church regularly. Have you ever asked somebody, Tell me about your relationship to Christ. Oh, I've been going to church since I was a kid. Don't, I mean, it's, you don't want to be entirely rude, but don't you just want to say, that isn't what I asked you. I asked you about your relationship with Christ. I go to church all the time. That's great, wonderful. So how's your relationship? I just want to keep asking until they realize going to church has nothing to do with whether you're a follower of Jesus Christ. After you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you ought to be in church. We talked about that last week. If you didn't get that message, catch up on that because I don't want to do, do that hobby horse of mine again. But you ought to be in church all the time, um, every Sunday, unless you're sick. Okay, hobby horse over. Um, or I was born into a Christian family. 
Lots of people think that they were born into a family where mom and dad were saved. I was brought up in the church. I was brought up in a Christian home. It, that doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't make you a follower of Jesus Christ. I've heard it said many, many times in a variety of illustrations, you could be brought up in a garage, but it doesn't make you an automobile. You don't, being brought up somewhere doesn't make you what the environment is about, right? So what is the gospel? That's what I want to spend time on this morning. And really, I'm doing this for two groups of people. The majority of us here are already followers of Christ. We have gone through the experience that we call being saved. We've trusted in Jesus. We have uh, made our relationship right with God. I want you to remember today what the gospel is so that it'll help you this week as you encounter circumstances and you get to think back, look what God did in my life to make me his child now I'm facing this temptation. How does the gospel still apply when I'm facing temptation and I'm already a Christian? Does the holiness of God affect that? Does the fact that Jesus died to enable me to be something that I can't be on my own, does that affect me facing temptation? Does it affect how I interact with people at work? All these things are affected by the truth of the gospel. And if you're here and you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, listen, I am super glad you're here. I hope you will find as it is, it is our effort to, to be open and honest with you. I'm not a pulpit pounder. If I were, this pulpit would be in trouble. But uh, I'm, not, I'm not harsh or unkind in what I say, but there is truth to the gospel that I hope will penetrate your heart today. And I hope you will respond to the truth of the gospel for the first time if you never have. Okay? Let's jump in. Now you can grab your notes. And we're going to talk, first of all, as it relates to the gospel, about the problem. What is the problem? The problem really is a disconnect. The problem is we're separated from God. And it starts with this. God is holy. Holy means two things in the Bible. It has to do with purity, and it has to do with separation. Purity is the positive aspect. God is completely pure, absolutely sinless. There is nothing wrong in God. In fact, God is not only holy, he's the definition of what holy is. And it means a person who is holy... God, who is holy, is separate from sin. That's the negative aspect. Positively, he defines what good and righteous and perfect is. Negatively, he is completely separated from that which is not those things. Isaiah chapter 6 records for us a vision that the prophet Isaiah had. And it drove him to his knees. Here's how it went. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he covered his, or with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the thresholds shook 
at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. This is an incredible experience. Isaiah, in this vision, is lifted up into the presence of God. He saw the majesty and glory of God. He described it in the only terms he could come up with. He described it as the foundations of the place shaking of smoke filling the room. He described it with with God lifted up. He he described it in in terms that were beyond his ability to really fathom. And then he heard about the holiness of God as these angels flew. Angels who were always in the presence of God, but still who covered their, their eyes, who covered their feet, who could not... Look on the holiness of God, crying out about his holiness. And Isaiah's response was horror. (laughs) Isaiah's response was, woe is me. I am undone. I am in deep trouble. I have unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people with unclean lips. He's speaking, of course, symbolically. He's, I I am, I'm unclean. It's always the response of people when they get a glimpse of the holiness of God that they fall to their knees and there is this sense of dread about themselves. The gospel begins with understanding the holiness of God. He is exalted. He is majestic. He is beyond our ability to describe how beautiful and awesome he is. He is so separated from mankind that when we really get an idea of the chasm that's between us, it's, it's overwhelming. I hope it always is overwhelming to us when we think about the majesty of God. And here's one of the reasons I hope it's overwhelming. Because when I think about the gospel, when I think about the fact that in Christ... I am brought into a relationship of father and son with that person that was described as holy beyond my ability to fathom. In Christ, I am brought near, as the New Testament says. I've been separated, now I'm brought near. What an incredible thing. The flip side of that coin that God is holy, is that we are rebellious and sinful. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Not even the most righteous person you can think of. Not even the most impressive person in any religious 
segment of the population that you can come up with. They're not righteous either. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So much for the argument of, I'm a pretty good person, right? Nobody is good enough. 100% absolute, complete, sinless perfection. That's the standard. Nobody reaches that. When we realize that, when we recognize that, I've never had anybody argue with me. Oh, well, if you put it that way, what other way is there? Well, the other way is, well, I'm pretty good compared to so-and-so, right? We always find somebody just a little worse than we are. Well, I'm better than they are. Okay. But they're separated from God by their sin. Do you really want to be just slightly better than that? How do you know how good it is? Well, this is how good it is. No one does good. Not even one. And what is the problem with that? Romans 3, 23, a few verses later in that same chapter. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So when you are talking to your friends or your family members or your co-workers about their relationship with Christ, and you get an opportunity to share the gospel with them, the first thing you have to do is help them recognize that there is a problem. God is holy. We are sinners. We all fall short. We take that picture of God who is incredibly exalted because of his glory and his majesty and his perfection, and he's here. We all fall short. It doesn't matter how far short you fall. There is no grading scale. It's not what about 90%. It's pass or fail. You are either perfectly holy or you are not. That's the story of the beginning of the gospel. If you can get a person to be objective enough to think about that, they'll say, well, then we're, we're all screwed. I mean, we're all, right? I mean, then nobody's that good. At which point you say, exactly. Because there is a provision for that. Nobody can earn their way into heaven. It can't happen. You're not good enough. Even if you could figure out a way to live absolutely perfect from today for the rest of your life, you already blew it. So you are imperfect at best. And you are rebellious and sinful if you're like the rest of humanity. So there's a problem, but God, knowing that there was nothing we could do, instituted a provision, and it began with Jesus. John chapter 1, these are some really, really incredible verses. In the beginning was the Word. This whole chapter talks about Jesus, by the way. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was already in the beginning with God. So in other words, when there was such a thing as a beginning, when God began to create all that there is, Jesus was already there because he was God. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
It is the prerogative of God to create. And Jesus is described in John chapter 1 as creating. He is what we call in scriptural terms the God-man. He is God. He always existed. He is God himself. And I should have added verse 14, but if your Bible's open there, drop down and I'll read it to you. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is and always was God. And Jesus took on flesh and became man. It was the only possible way. There was no person on the planet sufficient. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament certainly wasn't sufficient. God sent the perfect substitute. Jesus, God in the flesh, God and man. Not some weird hybrid, not some whatever. He is God and he is man. And he died for our sins. Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That whole section of scripture is amazing. It talks about, you know, if somebody's a really good person, somebody might step in and maybe just perhaps might give their life for a really good person. But okay, there might be several people that would do that. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Jesus did that. He died for us. While we were still in this condition of sinful, rebellious separation from the perfectly holy God, while we were still like that, Jesus died for us. He bore our sins, says Isaiah 53. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was on him. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is an unbelievably profound section of scripture. We, meaning humanity, when Jesus died, tended to respond with, well, I mean, he must have deserved that. God must be doing that to him. When in fact, he, he was dying for our sins. He was dying for our transgressions. The chastisement that he was experiencing was what belonged to us. He died for us. And thankfully, as we celebrate really every first day of the week when we show up at church on Sunday morning, we celebrate the resurrection. On the first day of the week, Jesus came back to life again. So he is the God-man. He died for our sins, and he bodily rose from the grave. He came back from death. Luke 24. Can, can, I, just, can I just read it for you again? This is how Luke records what happened. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And 
they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? (laughs) I don't know what their tone of voice was when they say that, but it sounds to me like these, these women showed up wanting to put spices on the body because it all happened so quickly to accommodate the Sabbath and all of that. And now it's like these angels are perplexed. What? Why are you looking here? Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Jesus came back to life, literally was dead and in the tomb, sealed shut by the soldiers with a, with a seal on it so if anybody broke it, we'd know who did it. And he literally came back to life again unbelievable. That's why Pastor Sean says we believe some weird stuff. A dead guy came back to life. If it weren't for that, it would all be a really cool story about this really impressive martyr who died and said it was for everybody. But he came back to life again, vindicating everything that he had claimed about himself and vindicating everything God had claimed about him. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. That whole chapter, in the verses leading up to it, after after Paul shares the gospel, he goes through the whole thing, saying basically, if Jesus weren't actually alive, if he didn't come back to life again, we are the most pitiful bunch on the planet. Because we have testified that he did, so we're, we're liars. We have said that God did it, so we're false witnesses of God. And secondly, if it's true that the dead aren't ever brought back to life again, we have wasted everything we do. Our preaching is empty, our living is empty, our faith is empty. It's all worthless if it's not for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he simply ends by saying, but now, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So we have this incredible problem. God's holy, we are the furthest thing from holy we can be. Completely separated from God's majesty. The provision is God sent Jesus, the God-man, to earth, who lived here, lived perfectly righteous, died for our sins, and literally came back to life again. I know. Really amazing, right? You're overwhelmed. I know. That's why you're so quiet. Um, Here's the third thing. What do we do? What's the remedy? How do we get point A and point B to intersect for us? Three things. We repent of our sin. Repent is more than feel sorry for sin. Repent is not... Oh, I wish I hadn't done that. That's why we talk often at Coastal about the fact that the Christian life is a lifestyle of repentance. 
It's a lifestyle of turning from the things that are sinful in our life and turning toward righteousness, turning toward God. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 and 10, I don't have it on the screen, but, but uh, it's, uh, it's a description of the kind, two different kinds of repentance. Worldly repentance just brings grief. Worldly repentance just makes you sad. Godly grief, on the other hand, worldly grief just leaves you there. Godly grief brings you to repentance. Godly grief says, man, it breaks my heart that I did this. It breaks my heart that I, that I participated in this. It breaks my heart that I spent time thinking about that. It breaks my heart that I said that thing or I acted that way. And by the grace of God, I'm not going to do that anymore. I am turning from that and I'm turning to God. Acts 17, verses 30 and 31 say, the times of ignorance God overlooked as, as Peter is preaching, uh, he, is, he is talking uh, back about history in the past, and God overlooked certain things, and now it says he commands all people everywhere to repent because he fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has appointed. And of this he gave his assurance by raising him from the dead. See, it's all connected. And saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' message to the disciples, Mark 1.15, was repent and believe in the gospel. So that's what we do. We repent of our sin and we believe the gospel. When uh, Paul and Silas were in jail at Acts 16 and when uh, the earthquake came and they got loose and all the other prisoners were loose and the uh, security guard at the entrance was saying, oh man, I'm a dead man because all these prisoners got out. Paul and Silas said, hold on, we're all still here. And the guy came in, fell at their feet trembling and said, what do I have to do to be saved? And what did they say to him? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We have to believe in the gospel. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. But if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Believe in the gospel. What's the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. I committed to you what I first of all received, how that Jesus... Can we, let me read it. I'm right here, okay? So you're not thinking I'm making this up. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then it goes on to talk about all the various people that actually saw him alive. Hundreds and hundreds of them. The gospel is, I'm separated from God. God did something about it when he sent Jesus to die for my sins, to be buried, and to come back to life again. And I, I intersect with that truth when I believe the gospel. So the remedy is I repent of my sin, I believe the gospel, I receive Christ. 
John chapter 1, verse 12, to all who received him. And that passage of Scripture is talking about how Jesus came to his own people, to, to the Jewish people in that day in the first century, and they rejected him. But to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We repent, we believe the gospel, we receive Christ as our Savior. I don't want to have anything confusing about that. That is not what happens at communion. When we share in the Lord's Supper, in the Lord's Supper you are not receiving Christ when you do that. That's why we emphasize this thing is a memorial. It reminds us you receive Christ when you repent of your sin and believe in the gospel and take Christ as your only hope of your salvation. So let me give you a few thoughts to take with you. Guarding the gospel is a matter of life and death. It is not a, an important thing it is not a pretty significant thing. It is the thing. If we don't guard the gospel, it means death, eternal death for everybody who hasn't yet heard it. <laughs> we have to guard the truth of the gospel. It's that important. Secondly, don't minimize the immensity of the chasm between you and God apart from Christ. So how does this apply if I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm living my life and I'm going through and I, I have a fight with my wife? Am I acting as though I've jumped back across the chasm? If I have pride or if I have a demanding attitude or I'm unkind or I don't treat her in all that way that 1 Corinthians uh, 13 describes love, have I... Am I acting as though the chasm is still there? Because it's not. That's why Jesus came to deliver me from my sin. Okay, something a little less personal, sorry. Because, uh, I mean, that's true if you fight with your husband too, not just the other way. What about at work? What about how I function in relationship to my friends? How about my my interaction with my extended family members. All of those things are affected because when I'm apart from, when, I, when I'm not in Christ, there's this incredible chasm of difference between me and God. And when I don't recognize all that God has done to bring me across that chasm, to bring me near to himself... I'm acting as though the chasm is still there. Don't minimize the immensity of that in your heart. Thirdly, believe the gospel. Listen, if you're here and you've never trusted in Christ, I would love to talk to you. I have people here at the ready. They will sit down and talk with you as soon as this service is over if you want and show you how you can know for sure. They'll go through this again, give you a chance to, to repent on the spot and believe the gospel, and you can leave this place a follower of Christ. And share the gospel. It's the only hope for everybody, right? Anybody who wants to get into heaven, I know that sounds exclusive. Here's the good news about the how good is good enough thing. Nobody's good enough. God is totally fair about that. Nobody is good enough. The only way you get in is by grace through faith in the shed blood, 
death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everybody gets in the same way. It doesn't get more fair than that. But you've got to share it with people. We've got to let people know. We had did a series back a year ago on the importance of evangelism. Spent six or eight weeks. I still have the list of all your lead three or your reach three people that you wrote down and we put them on a big uh, list. I hope you're still praying for them. I hope you're still sowing seeds, building relationships with them so you have opportunity to share the gospel with them. It's desperately important. Tell you what, we got to guard the gospel. It's why we're so passionate about it here at Coastal. It's part of the core of what we do and why we behave the way we do. You hear about it all the time. You hear about it very commonly on Sunday mornings as we talk about the gospel. It never becomes unimportant to you. If you've never trusted Christ, it is desperately important. If you've trusted Christ and you're a follower of Jesus, it's still desperately important because the gospel continues to transform us day after day. So listen, I hope you respond in whatever way you need to this morning. Our worship team is going to come, and uh, I'm going to pray here in just a second. And uh, however you need to respond, I hope you will in this, uh, in this moment as we sing together and plan to leave. I hope in leaving, if you need to trust Christ, I hope you'll come find me. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll connect you with somebody who can sit down and talk with you and get that cared for, okay? Listen, God is good. He's given us Jesus to care for the problem, the one thing in our life that we absolutely could do nothing about except for him. That's amazing, right? Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the the truth of your word. Thank you that we can trust you. Uh, We know what the problem is. We know what you did to resolve the problem. And Lord, I'm grateful that all we have to do is respond. We must repent of our sin, believe in the gospel, receive Christ. I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here this morning for whom that has not ever happened, that they wouldn't leave here till they take care of it. And I pray that for all of us, Father, you would remind us of the incredible lengths you went to bring us to yourself. We are so grateful.